Well, before I pray, I just want to remind you that this week is actually our final K group. Uh, it's always a kind of a, a sad time when, when you split up during that time, but we do this uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, we know that the school system at this time is busy with different graduations and everything else, but then we also, res- and people begin to travel, we also know that uh, because of this, we desire everyone to gather at the church on Wednesday nights to begin our summer prayer meetings, and that is an incredible valuable time that will bless your soul. So I just want to encourage you, if you have already marked your calendars for Wednesday nights, to, to please make your way over to the church for our prayer meetings. Uh, I, I, I hear all the time, uh, which is kind of strange, um, that churches that do not have a prayer meeting surprisingly ask me if our church will pray for them during their prayer meetings, during our prayer meetings. So I want to encourage you, please come and join us for a time of corporate prayer. Let's go to the Father and pray now. Lord, we are just so overwhelmed with the love of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that as we continue in this study of Genesis, that, Lord, we would truly see you. That is who the story is about. And we pray, Lord, that as we see you and you reveal more of yourself through the power of your word, by your Holy Spirit, that it would cause us to be in awe, to be in a state of worship, and to desire you all the more. We pray our lives will be transformed because we have interacted with the living Word of God this morning. We pray this according to the finished work of Christ. Amen. Well, I know after my last sermon, I left you on somewhat of a cliffhanger as Noah, his family, and the animals were enclosed in the ark for 40 days. I'm sure you want to know what happens next, but I must keep you in suspense just a little bit longer. And before I proceed, I need to remind you of the overall reason that Genesis was composed. Back in January, I told you this book has a twofold purpose. One is that it would provide the origins of the Hebrew people that Moses was leading across the wilderness at the time it was composed. They would need to know the reason why they were God's chosen people as the descendants of Abraham and why they had hope that a better land awaited them. And second, and the most important, is that the Jews would know and understand their God. He is unlike the paltry gods that the Egyptians served, the false idols. He is the creator God and sustainer of everything. He is almighty and trustworthy. The historical characters in this book come and go from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph, but among them all is one chief actor, the Lord God Almighty. He is the consistent character throughout the book. Moses has collected a series of oral tradition narratives, but he has done so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God has woven together this story that reveals who he is and what he is doing. It is the consistent theme throughout the 66 individual books that make the Bible the most remarkable volume ever written. So as we proceed, we need to make sure we're not just hearing about faint folk tales here, but we're looking for what is revealing about our great and glorious God. So if you will, turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8. This is found on page 6 of your pew Bible. It's going to help you to have your Bibles open here. 
We began the story of Noah and his ark back in chapter 6, and we divided it into three sections, pre-flood, flood, and post-flood. And we've already covered the first two of these in our previous sermon, so today we're going to take a look at what happens after the flood. And this section can be split into four divisions, the subsiding waters, Noah's worship, the Noahic covenant, and the curse of Canaan. That's the subsiding waters, Noah's worship, the Noahic covenant, and the curse of Canaan. Now, we're only going to be able to cover the first three of these this morning. But when we last left Noah, he was in his large vessel with his family and the animals under a barrage of water. We saw that the floodgates of heaven broke open and poured over the land, and waters rose from below the earth's surface. Chapter 7, verse 20 tells us that the waters covered the earth and rose to a height of 20 feet above the mountaintops. We should also remember this was not a normal, natural disaster. This was a supernatural event. This was God's judgment upon the earth for the way that humanity had ruined it. It was not because men and women had been a little bit naughty. Chapter 6, verse 5 reveals they were utterly wicked, and they continued to give themselves over to evil continually. It was so bad that there was only one human being that found favor in the eyes of God, Noah. And we'll learn in our next sermon that he too was deeply flawed. So it makes a soul wonder just how corrupt the rest of humanity had become. As God saw such evil, he chose to start the image-bearing process over again with Noah. And that is why Noah and his family and the male and female pairs of the animal kingdom were aboard the ark as the earth was completely submerged underwater. Chapter 8 verse 1 begins a turning point in the narrative. It's an important introductory statement, and it will be an overarching theme throughout the rest of the story. But God remembered Noah. But God remembered Noah. Now, you need to understand that when this word remember is used in the Old Testament, it does not mean that God momentarily forgot about Noah and said, oh, shoot, I left Noah in the ark for too long. It's a phrase that always emphasizes a previous promise that God has made. So, for example, when the Israelites were enslaved and suffering under the Egyptians, Exodus 2.24 tells us, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. When God commissions Moses to be the deliverer in Exodus 6, Yahweh told him, I am the Lord. I appeared, past tense, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. God was going to deliver the Jews based on his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his covenant to them. The remembering highlights the promise that God had made previously. And we consistently see the Old Testament characters base their prayers on God's promises to them. So David prays in Psalm 25, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. 
And Nehemiah prayed, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you among, unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. David made his prayer based upon God's promises. Nehemiah made his prayer based upon God's previous promise. So this word remember is in reference to promises made by God. And in chapter 6, verse 18 here of Genesis, we saw that God said he would make a covenant with Noah, a promise that he would save him. Now, we'll speak more about covenants just a little bit later. But for now, we should note that Noah was not necessarily saved through the flood because he earned it, but because the Lord promised he would save him. And that is why the narrator uses this word, remember. God remembers not because he forgot, but his next actions will be based upon what he promised he would do for Noah. And verse 2 begins to relate what happens next. And the description is, is not necessarily chronological, so it can be just a little bit confusing. A rehearsal of repeated ideas is common in oral tradition. We'll see it often in the text here. The narrator will reemphasize some of the information that he's already revealed previously. And the bombardment of water stopped after 40 days, just as the Lord said it would. But we learn that the earth was completely covered with this deluge for 150 days before the waters began to subside. This means everything on the earth, all of it, would have been destroyed. And verse 4 tells us five months after the flood began that the ark finally settles on the mountain peak of Mount Arafat. And three months after that, Noah and his family were able to see the peaks of other mountains come into view. So the waters covered the majority of the earth for several months, not just 40 days. We're talking about a supernatural flood like nothing we have ever conceived. I'm not sure how anyone could interpret this as a local flood. I just don't know. Verse 6 tells us that once the rains ended, Noah opened a window on the ark and he released two types of birds as a test, a raven and a dove. And we're told the raven went to and fro. I don't read into that that the raven did not return to the ark as is assumed. It just didn't return specifically to Noah. Ravens are carrion eaters. And I hate to be graphic, but most likely it was able to alight upon floating carcasses and then return back to the roof of the ark as it desired. It no longer needed Noah's direct care. The dove, however, returned continuously to Noah. It had no place to perch until one of the expeditions it brought an olive leaf to Noah. Again, how an olive vine survived the flood can only be explained supernaturally that God's beginning to regenerate the earth. And then came the day that the dove chose not to return. This would have given Noah hope that the flood was nearing its end. Verse 13 tells us nearly a year after the deluge began, the waters finally receded. But Noah waits to hear from God before he disembarks. It was God who shut him in the ark, and he will trust when God says he may exit the ark. He must trust the Lord, not his eyes. That is good theology. 
And he is in the ark nearly two more months before God releases him. And when Noah is allowed to exit, God once again gives them the divine mandate of being fruitful and to fill the earth. They're not supposed to remain in the ark. They're supposed to get out of it. And according to verse 19, within that year that they had inhabited the ark, the multiplication process had already begun. Families of animals came out of the ark, not just pairs. At the end of the chapter, we see Noah's first action upon landing on dry land. He worships God. No doubt he is thankful for the Lord's provision in saving his family. His gratitude is one of the reasons he's considered a righteous man. He builds an altar, and he took at least one of every kind of clean animal for a sacrifice as a burnt offering to the Lord. This is not just a God-honoring action. It also demonstrates Noah's faith in the Lord's provision. We should remember the scarcity of animals at this point. Noah sacrifices a precious food source. He trusts God to provide for their needs continually. And God is pleased by such an act of worship. And from chapter 8, verse 21, through chapter 9, verse 17, we will see the beginning of the promises of God here. For the rest of chapter 8, the narrator tells us information that could only be spirit-inspired. These next words are internal to Yahweh's heart. In Hebrew, this is a short poem. And this information is important. First, despite saving the righteous Noah, God is aware that Noah and his prodigy will continue to have an evil heart from their youth. While God has eradicated the worst of sinful men and women, the Lord has yet to conquer sin. That will come with the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. But keep in mind that information of God knowing man will continue to sin for a little later in the sermon here. God is quite aware that sin still lurks in the heart of every human. And second, he promises he will not completely destroy the whole of creation meaning the plants and the animals, the earth, the insects, like he did with the flood. This promise is valid until the new heavens and the new earth appear. It says here, as long as the earth endures, the earth will continue in its normal life cycle. This is the beginning of the formulation of the Noahic covenant, and it originates in the heart of God, folks. It starts in God's heart. The beginning of chapter 9 elaborates more on the divine mandate of chapter 8, verse 17, as God speaks directly to Noah and his family. Once again, God reestablishes men and women as his image bearers on the earth. They are to hold authority over the animal kingdom. Mankind is now at the top of the food chain. But what was originally intended to be perfect harmony, there is now a need to make the animal kingdom fearful of man. Now, there's much speculation as to why this was so with the prevailing theory that it reveals just how pervasive man's violence had spread over the animal world. Hence, this would now offer protection to to Noah and his family as God's new vice regents. Noah and his family are also given full permission to eat from all living things, but that does not include other human beings nor to drink or eat blood, which is the symbol of life. Blood will come to represent atonement. Considering these verses in context in reference to eating flesh and blood probably reveals just how barbaric the pre-deluge world was. 
Keep that in mind. Therefore, God installs justice upon the earth in the form of capital punishment. Three times God says a reckoning is required for the life of another human, presumably for intentionally murdering someone. In verse 8, another poem is given. If a man or woman takes another life, then their own life would be forfeit. Blood for blood, life for life. And the reason is that men and women are still image bearers of God on the earth. Humans are of supreme value. They are intended to be God's vice regents. As image bearers, they are to be honored and respected. To mar that image means another image bearer would be required in their place. A substitute. Keep that in mind also as we move forward. We now arrive at the declaration of the Noahic Covenant. It is simply a promise on God's behalf to never destroy the world with a flood again. In some ways, this was declared back in chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. And one might wonder why it needs to be voiced again, particularly in covenant form. Why must God say it aloud to Noah and his sons? Can he just make it into himself? Well, to help us understand why it is here, I, I want to employ a helpful illustration from John Piper. Let's say our lawmakers in Montgomery were to decide to build a road. Then essential to the project is to know the destination of the road, wouldn't you say? It must begin somewhere and it must end somewhere. They would not merely just go out and begin constructing a road without knowing where it was going. At least we hope our bureaucratic process wouldn't do that, right? So let's say that I-65 did not exist, and they decide the destination is Huntsville. This new road would be making its way to our fair city, and most likely we would want adequate signage on this highway to assure travelers of their destination and that they are on the right path. After all, if our destination was Huntsville and we ended up in Jackson, Mississippi, we would be very disappointed for more reasons than one. We would not want to trust, sorry, I didn't mean to dig you people from Mississippi. I, I, I couldn't help myself. It shows the sinfulness still remaining in mankind. We would not trust, right, the, the makers of the road nor their road signs if they proved to be wrong. The Noahic covenant operates in a similar fashion as one of those signs. It teaches us about where human history is headed and the type of God behind the promises that he makes. Covenants are usually described as contracts, but that is a poor definition because it makes it sound like I will perform an action as long as you perform in an action. But in the Bible, covenants are promises. Covenants are promises. The one making these promises are expected to abide by them. Sometimes there may be consequences for not abiding by the agreement, other times not. But even when the covenant is violated, the promise is still valid unless a new covenant is established to replace it. And covenants play a vital role in the book of Genesis. The Hebrew word for covenant is first used with Noah. But many believe the first covenant was made with Adam in the Garden of Eden, what we refer to as a covenant of works. 
The divine mandate to multiply and subdue the earth were given to Adam and Eve as the Lord's image bearers. It would be a wonderful and satisfactory experience for them, provided they did not violate God's single command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they did, then the curse of death would come upon creation. It was a promise with a consequence. Provided they obeyed, there would have been no negative outcomes. Of course, we know they didn't. They disobeyed, sinned, and brought the contamination of sin within creation. They did not obey. Therefore, God's promise of a consequence came just as it said it would. But there is another type of covenant. It's called a covenant of grace. It is a promise made by a greater personage with no stipulations on the part of the other person. It is a promise from the first party made to the second party without any expectations. Now, I hope you are aware that this is the type of covenants that we make in marriage. When a couple stands before the body of Christ as their witness, they are making promises to one another without condition, or at least they should be. 29 years ago, I pledged to Lisa I would love her exclusively and unconditionally for as long as she lived. There were no conditions required of her. Nothing else was compulsory on her part. I hoped that she would reciprocate, to which she did by making the same promise to me. But my promise was in place regardless. And as signs of our promises, we gave each other rings— And when I look at my hand, I see a visible sign reminding me of the promise that I made to her without any stipulations on her part. I see a visible sign. It is a declared love. This is a covenant of grace. And this is the type of covenant made to Noah and his sons in chapter 9, verse 8. The Lord makes a promise to his family and to their offspring and with all living things on the earth. The promise is that that he will never again destroy the entire world with a flood. This does not mean there will never be another local flood of any kind, but that God will, will never use a flood as his means of worldwide judgment. They won't have to fear when the rains come again. Remember, God was aware that human sin still existed in Noah's heart and in his son's hearts. How could these humans continue the divine mandate under the threat that their sin would bring another worldwide judgment? There would be no progress upon the earth knowing that any moment that God could eradicate them and start all over again. Instead of destroying the earth in such a manner, God would be patient with his creation as he institutes a new promise to come. The promise of Christ. And the Hebrew people counted on such grace, that the Lord would deal continuously with them in mercy. The prophet Isaiah recounts this covenant as hope in Isaiah 54, where God states, this is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love will not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says Yahweh, who has compassion on you. God promises that he will not do that with a flood again. And as a sign of his promise, God gives the earth a sign that will appear in every generation. 
a rainbow. A rainbow points towards the sky. It points towards the God of heaven and earth who makes this covenant. Prior to this point, there were no rainbows. But verse 16 tells us that like my wedding ring, God looks at the rainbow and he remembers his promise to his. He refrains from raining judgment down upon us in such a fashion, even though we deserve it. Now, we know that God knows all. He does not forget. And he always keeps his promises. The bow is not for his benefit. It is for ours to look upon and remember that we have a promise-keeping God. Do you ever think about that when you look at a rainbow? I mentioned this before, but, but in Amelia Kelly's house, she has on display a photograph of a complete rainbow. What a wonderful reminder of our trustworthy God. Please, brothers and sisters, do not allow the LBGTQ plus crowd to hijack this beautiful sign that God has given us. Don't be ashamed of rainbows. The bow does not represent diversity. It represents a promise kept of holding back judgment, even though we deserve it. Because God has kept his promise since then. The earth has never experienced a great deluge like it did in Noah's day, even though we deserve it every day. So let me return to our road illustration once more. The Noahic covenant is a sign on the road to where God is leading us. We first began this series in Genesis by looking at the ending of the story overall in the final chapters of Revelation, when the Lord will fully consummate the redemption of Christ with all of its benefits. That will be a full restoration of our image bearer status, but without sin and all for his glory. And from one point in history to the other, we are learning about our God. And here with the Noahic covenant, we are discovering that the Lord has a covenant of grace. He keeps his word based upon his own promise, not on anything that men and women do or any other living creature for that matter. In chapter 8, verse 21, the Lord knows that the intention of man's heart from his youth is evil. Yet he still offers his promise of grace. He's aware in chapter 9, verse 8, that the murder of one man's life will require the sacrifice of another. He warns that the lifeblood of one will require the lifeblood of another. Yet he still offers his covenant of grace. The Noahic covenant reveals to us that our God can make his promises of grace and still remain just in some way. So if you will, please turn with me back to 1 Peter chapter 3. This is found again on page 1015 of your pew Bible. Peter will use the Noahic story as an illustration and compare it with the covenantal sign under the new covenant. His point is to prove the faithfulness of God in all circumstances. Now, the context of this portion of Peter's letter talks about Christians being willing to suffer under difficult circumstances for the outcome which God will use for his glory. And Peter first compares the believer's willingness to endure to that of Jesus. So he writes in verse 18 here, For Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prisons, because they formerly did not obey. There, Peter shows us how God is able to remain just. Christ became our substitute, the righteous for the unrighteous. And now he's going to compare this endurance to Noah. Verse 20, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. The point of what Peter is trying to say here, or not trying to say, he is actually saying, is that God keeps his word, even when we're in the midst of suffering. Our resistance of sin, our endurance through persecution, our remaining in a difficult marriage, God will carry you through it just as ultimately Christ was carried through the cross and gave us his righteousness, and Noah was carried through the flood to begin the image-bearer process over again. However, justice will be served. The consequences of human sin is a type of wrath from God, as Roman 1's revealed. But the suffering that a Christian experiences is not a judgment from God. We have been saved through such judgment by what Jesus did for us on the cross. Jesus was the life for a life, blood for blood on our behalf. Noah, being saved through the flood was only a foreshadowing of the overall work that the Son of God will do on our behalf as the Christian receives the covenant of grace. As verse 18 here tells us, God will save us from our sins and the punishment we deserve through His Son, Jesus. It is a covenant of grace that that He gives His beloved chosen based on His Word. He exchanged His perfect Son's life for our sinful souls. Therefore, it doesn't come from anything that we do, but it is given to us freely without merit. Even in the worst of our conditions, our outcome is secure because Jesus has secured it. And our baptism is the covenantal sign. The baptism itself is, is not, doesn't save us like it's washing dirt off of our body, but what it represents our identifying and our union with Christ, Christ dying in our stead and being raised from the grave. When we're baptized, we're buried in the water just as Christ was buried in the water. When we are raised from the waters just as Christ was raised from the grave. And we walk in new life Jesus, just as Jesus now walks in a glorified state. And we testify in our baptism that it is all of grace based upon the completed work of Jesus. Our baptism is like Noah's faith to enter the ark. Noah didn't deserve salvation, but the Lord chose to save him. The ark carried his family through God's judgment. And Noah emerges on the other side to complete God's purpose for humanity anew. And we place our faith in Christ to carry us through the wrath of God to emerge on the other side to fulfill God's purposes as his image bearers. Praise God. But friend, don't misunderstand. God said he would not destroy the world in this way. But that does not mean that he is unwilling to allow man's sin to destroy himself. 
There is a judgment to come. The Bible says this will happen through a refining fire, not water. But there is a way out of that. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I would be the first to testify I am of the worst. The story of Noah points to this covenant of grace that Jesus extends for the purpose of mercy. It will never be about what you can do for God, but about what Jesus has already done, the means of salvation that God has provided. Only in Christ can you have true everlasting hope of not experiencing the full wrath of God that awaits every sinner in the future. But believer, please know that the hardships that you are experiencing now, especially the persecution you may feel for your faith, that is not God's wrath on you. That is the consequence of living in a sin-filled world in which God allows sinful humanity to pursue according to their sin nature. But even when we get sucked in on occasion, our hope is in the cross, just as Noah's was in the ark. Jesus is carrying you through all of this under his covenant of grace to reach the other side of our full glorification. And he is a God that always, always keeps his word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that as we get ready to honor our Lord Jesus, the, the truly the solid rock on which all of us stand, our only means of righteousness, that, Lord, we would try to shed any fears that we have, that in the midst of it, Lord, that if we are trying to save ourselves by any other means other than that which you have provided, that we would dispense with them immediately and that we would cling to Jesus right now. He is our only hope. He is the only means of salvation, just as that ark was the only means of salvation for Noah and his family. And just as that ark carried Noah and his family through your judgment, so does Christ. And just as the promise afterwards to restore the image-bearing process happened with Noah, the same happens after we come to Christ. Our sanctification begins. We become to look more like the God-man, Jesus Christ. We start to display the character traits of our great and glorious God. And we pray, Lord, that you would begin that work in us now. Lord, I pray for anyone here, anyone here, Lord, who has not found that. I know, Lord, how they feel in such a moment. I, too, was where they were sitting. That they are rocking on the waves. It feels like the waves are pounding over their head. They feel so lost. They feel so utterly out of place. Oh, Lord, allow them to cling to the rock of Jesus right now. Allow them to find the salvation that only comes from him so that their joy may be full. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.